morning, everybody. If you'd like to, turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke, the fourth chapter. title for the message this morning is The Anointed Christ. Luke chapter 4. Now in the Old Testament administration, the Old Testament government, for lack of a better term, over Israel, you had three major offices. And all these offices involved anointing. The Lord would choose what man would occupy this office, and they would take a certain mixture in oil, and they would dump it on this man and anoint him. And so those three major offices are this. First, you had the king. This was God's appointed king. king was not like a president. wasn't like a prime minister. Whatever the king said, that's what was done. Whatever the king purposed, that's what happened. He was the king, God's appointed king. Speaks of Christ our king, Christ our sovereign, the one who purposes and rules and reigns over all men and all things at all times. You had the priest, especially the high priest, anointed by God. His job was to bring the people before God, especially on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, he would slip underneath that veil into the Holy of Holies. And he had one thing with him. He had the blood of the sacrifice. And ceremonially, when he went underneath that veil with that blood, he would make appeasement on behalf of the people before God. Christ, our great high priest, that one who comes in the presence of his father with his own blood, with his sacrifice. And he makes appeasement with the father to the point that the father receives everyone that he represents because of that blood. And finally you had this, and this is the one that shamefully I probably think on the least. You had the prophet. What was the prophet's job? The prophet's job was to bring God to men. He spoke and all he ever said was exactly what the Lord told him to say. I have a friend who does some preaching, and he made a funny comment at one point. He goes, I think the prophets of old had an easier job. They just had to repeat whatever the Lord told them to say. They didn't have to study or anything. Whatever the Lord said, that's just what they said. That was their job, to bring God to men. And they just spoke what the Lord told them to speak. Christ is, in fact, our preacher. He is, in fact, the very Word of God be as clear about this as I possibly can be. The only thing that God the Father has to say to this generation and every other generation of men is this, Jesus Christ. Amen. That is all he has to say. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That's it. One thing, one way of salvation, Christ, one sanctification, one justification, one peace with God in Christ. That's it. He has one thing to say. And if I hear this gospel, this glorious word of God, and it's truly the truth, and it is made effectual to me unto salvation, the belief of the truth, I'm going to hear that from a man. It's going to come in an earthen vessel, but it's not that man. He's just a vessel. He's just a microphone. It is Christ giving that message. It is him speaking. It is him making it effectual to the heart of his people. He is, in fact, our preacher. You know, that's what he did for about three years of his life. He went about preaching, preaching the kingdom of God. And you imagine, or can you imagine, can I imagine, being at a place where he's preaching? Hear one of those messages. 
Now, we deal with distractions. Our minds wander. We get sleepy. Uh, the preacher gets boring. All these things happen. But I guarantee when he was speaking, just like these people here, all of our eyes would be fastened on him. No word would be wasted. No word would be lost. And for a sinner, it would have been the most glorious and comforting and peaceful thing a sinner had ever heard. And to a righteous man, it would have been the worst thing he had ever heard. Guaranteed. And that's what I want to do this morning. I actually want to look at what would be regarded as our Lord's first recorded message. He may have preached before this, probably often, but this is the first one that the Scripture records. It's a very short message. He reads some Scripture out of Isaiah 66.1. He makes a few comments. That's it. Man of very few words. But look down here. Look at verse 16. Look for. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This was his hometown, and all these people who would be in audience here had watched him grow up. They knew him as the son of Joseph. That's how they knew him. This man who was preaching to them was not foreign to them. They knew him. They knew him from this earth. And listen to this. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, he read, he gave a short interpretation, and he sat down. And this was his custom. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. This is what he did. This is what he could be expected to do, what he could be relied upon to do, and he could be predicted to do because this is what he always did. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. Why did he do that? Why was that his custom? Because that's what the law said to do. You go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he was a man of custom. At every feast, he went to the feast. He observed all of God's holy law. He was made under the law. Subject to the law in every way, shape, or form, every jot and every tittle. And this was his custom. He kept God's holy law. And he kept it perfectly. Not just on the outward, not just attending the feast, not just going to the synagogue. This man kept the law outwardly and he kept the law inwardly. Every part of him in obedience to his father. Always seeking and doing his father's will in everything. Never wrong thoughts. Never evil motives or evil intentions. No wickedness in that heart. He kept God's law perfectly. This was his custom. What he did, what he could be relied on to do, what he could be expected to do, and what he always did. He kept his custom. Now, before we look at what he said, I want you to see how the people reacted to this message. Look down here, look at verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 28. And all they in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of a hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Now, whatever he said in this message absolutely enraged these people to the point that they took a man who had only done two things. He had told them the truth, every word being the very word of God because it was God speaking. He told them the truth, and he did only good. Keep that in mind. This was a man of custom. He did no man wrong. He did no unrighteousness. This was a good man, the only good man. He did only those two things, and whatever he said 
these people said, we're going to take that man and we're going to chuck him off this hill and let him land on his head and die. They were ready to murder him, the very son of God. Now, here's my point in all this. I want to look at what he said. At the end of all this, if the Lord blesses us, if he meets with us this morning, and we can actually enter into what he said here, we're going to find we are in one of these two camps. Either I'm part of this mob who says, kill him, throw him off the cliff, get him down there right now, or, folks, this will be the best news I've ever heard in my entire life. And if the Lord is willing to bless us, there will be no in-between. One of the two. Now let's look at what he said. I want to start at the end of his message. Look at verse 25. He said, But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, his successor, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now, he gives two illustrations to these people, and they both relay the same point, that God is absolutely 100% sovereign in salvation. In the days of Elijah, you can read about it in 1 Kings 17, Elijah prayed that it would not rain for the space of three years, and the Lord granted that. What happens when it don't rain? There's a drought. No crops, no food, great famine throughout all the land. Tons of people starving, tons of people in misery. And the Lord passed every single one of them by and only had pity on one. One widow and her son. Elijah was only sent to one, the one of God's choosing. He pitied only one, a particular one, the one of his choosing. And because he sent Elijah and Elijah was with her, he sustained her and her son through that entire famine, even brought her son back to life when he got sick. Many in misery, many suffering, he chose to go to only one. Same goes with Naaman, the days of Elisha. Many lepers, many suffering. Elisha was only sent to one. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile. He was a Syrian Naaman he only cleansed one. Elisha was only sent to one. He is declaring the absolutely sovereignty of God in salvation. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. Now, Paul has a lot to say about that. Turn over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. How so? Let's find out. When you get to Romans chapter 9, look at verse 11. Here's an illustration of how it works. For the children, speaking of Jacob and Esau, twin brothers born of the same womb, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, of God, he's the one who calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. This is about as plain a language you can find in the whole scripture on the sovereignty of God. Very plainly he says this, these are two twin boys. 
from the same womb and before they were ever born, before they were ever manifest in this world, before they had done any good or evil, not according to works because there were no works at this point. He loved one, Jacob. And because he loved him, he chose him, he elected him unto salvation, not of works. This isn't God looking through the glass of time and saying, well, he would do good, so retroactively I'm going to elect him. No, not of works, but simply because of who Jacob was in. He was in Christ eternally. He was chosen in Christ. That's where God's love is. It's in Christ. He chose him unto salvation. He chose to show him mercy. Therefore, mercy he had to be shown, and he would find the reason for that mercy outside of Jacob. He would find it all somewhere else. He would find it in Christ. Another brother, Esau, before the world began, before he had done any good or evil, not according to works, God hated him. So he passed him by. He left him alone to do what he would naturally do, war against God, and flee from Jesus Christ. He did not intervene on his behalf. Now, a question is probably going to arise here. The question is found down here in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? It's a good question. Is the Lord wrong in this? Is he in error in saving in this manner? up to his sovereign mercy. Has he done any man wrong in all this? Paul says, God forbid. There is no unrighteousness with God. And he's actually going to give us two reasons that this is good, that this is right, that this is just, that this is best, that this is fair. It's all very, very good. And so here's the first reason. Verse 15. For he saith to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Here's the first reason the Scripture gives us why this is right, why this is good. Because he said it. For he saith to Moses, he did it, and he said it, and therefore it is good, and it is right, and it is best. Now, folks, I know that we are all born with a conscience. Every man is born with some semblance of right and wrong. We're all born with that conscience. You don't have to give the man a copy of the Scriptures, a copy of the Ten Commandments to know it's wrong to steal. He knows that. The law is written on his heart from birth. But that conscience, that sense of right and wrong and justice and fairness, it gets very seared very quickly. And one of the worst things we could possibly do is rely on our own intuition to find out whether something is right and good and just. If you want to know what the very standard of what good is, of what right is, what just is, it's very simple. If God did it, it's good. It's right. It's just. If God said it, it's the truth. It is the absolute truth. And anything that is contrary to that is man's lie. Let God be true and every man a liar. He said it. That's the very first reason the Scripture gives as to why this is right. He is the very standard of what is right and wrong and good and truth. Here's another one here. Look at verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth 
mercy. Now, that is a blanket statement on his sovereignty. It's not of him that willeth. Salvation is not up to a man, up to him accepting or rejecting some gift he has offered. No. If the Lord purposes to show mercy to a man, mercy he will have. He will be saved. If he does not purpose to show mercy to a man, he will not have it. It's not up to a man's will, nor is it of him that runneth. It's not a competition. It's not about a man meeting some sort of standard. No, it's up to the sovereign mercy and will of God. But that's a reason too. Because if it was up to him that willeth. If the Lord said, I'll save anybody, absolutely anybody, that is naturally willing to be saved under my terms, those terms where Jesus Christ gets all the glory in salvation. That man has to admit that he is a filthy sinner before God, undeserving of this great salvation that he provided. Nobody would. Nobody is willing, not by nature. You have to be made willing to be saved in that manner. You see, the sovereignty of God is absolutely necessary. It is not of him that runneth. If it was... If salvation was based on man meeting the standard, you run the race, you win, you make the time, you get salvation. Who'd be saved? Nobody, because God's standard is perfect righteousness. And if we're talking about a race, we can't even make the first step in the race. We go the opposite direction. That's what he's talking about here. But because it is all up to the sovereign will and mercy of God, him finding the reason to show one mercy outside of that object, a people will be saved. And they're called the elect. Now look down here. He goes on. Look at verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Pharaoh, the days of Moses... The Lord told Moses, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. He was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He was warring against God. Who is God? Who is your God that I shall obey him? He was warring against God and doing what he wanted to do. And it says time and time again, interchangeably, Pharaoh hardened his heart and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And both are true. He hardened his heart. He did what he wanted to do. He warred against God, and the Lord was sovereign over every bit of it. He empowered that man for a very short time to stand against him, literally. He built him up as a villain so he could conquer his villain, and he might make his great power known. That's who we're dealing with here. This is the God that Christ preached right here. He's preaching himself, by the way. This is Christ speaking. Now, if there's any other objection, Paul has a blanket answer. Look at verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If we're all just doing the will of God, either as a vessel of mercy, making his great mercy known, or a vessel of his perfect justice, if we're all just doing the will of God, how can we then find fault? Here's the reply, verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? This is the answer, the final answer. 
You're not God. You did not create. He created. And He is God. And as the created being, you are subject to His will. When one creates, he can do as he wills with his creation. And because of your status, because you did not create, because you are not God, you don't rate an answer. That's the end of it. I find it interesting that this is the point in the message where they wanted to throw him off a cliff headlong. Now, this life would be an anxious agony, though, if there was no certainty in salvation. God is sovereign, and you have absolutely no way to know whether he has chosen you or not. You have absolutely no way to know whether he's going to show you mercy and has shown you mercy or not. You just have to wait to the end. If that was the case, think about the anxiety. Think about the agony that would be this life. But you know what? It's not like that at all. There's absolute certainty of this thing of salvation. I wish we'd get hold of that. This is a certain salvation. Everything God says is certain. It must come to pass. It's already come to pass. That's where we're at. It's absolutely certain. Somebody can have full assurance. No reason to ever have a bad day. And Christ himself is going to tell us who the Father has purposed to show mercy to. And each one of these people, every one of them, they will have mercy. It's guaranteed. Look back up at verse 17 of your text. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 66.1. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I don't know how many countless people have read this scripture over the years. But this is the first time someone said it in first person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he was talking about me. He was talking about himself. I am the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to who? The poor. He has sent me to heal the who? Brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to who? The captives, the prisoners. And recovering of sight to the who? The blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You'll notice there is absolutely no uncertainty in any of those statements right there. If you want to know whether the Father has purposed to show you mercy and you have it, it's very simple. You meet this description right here. Poor. What does that mean? It means you lack means. You don't have the means to satisfy God. I cannot make my peace with God. I cannot keep the law. I can't even take the first step towards it. All I've ever done is break God's holy law. I can't make up for what I've done. I can't make atonement for my own sins. I cannot be my own intercessor. You are poor. You have nothing to bring to the table. You are spiritually in righteousness bankrupt before God. That's what poor means. Brokenhearted. What's a heart? It's a nature. The nature is broken. What's a nature supposed to do? How's it supposed to function? It should be pure and holy 
thinking only good thoughts, having only good imaginations, saying only good and holy things, doing only good works. But to those whose nature is broken, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It does evil. It thinks evil. It says evil. It has evil motives. It has evil intentions. Everything is touched with the need for self-glorification. It's broken. That's who he's talking about here. Captive prisoner. Someone who cannot not sin. It is my nature. It is my name. It is what I do. It is what I think. The blind, one who looks inside himself, and he cannot find any reason God will look upon him in mercy, in the bruised. It literally means smitten through. And the idea is this. A man is sitting there with an open wound. He is bleeding out, and he cannot heal himself. If nobody comes along and nobody intervenes for him, and no one seals him up and patches him up, he is going to die wounded in the fall. If he doesn't come to me, and do something for me. I can't get to him. I can't do anything for myself. If he doesn't sovereignly, of his own accord, of his own will, come to me and do something for me, I'm going to bleed out. I'm going to go to hell. That's the people he is talking about here. And if you wanted to sum these people up with one word, just one, the scripture uses it time and time again, sinner. Claire read this Wednesday night, and this is quickly become my favorite verse of scripture. If you take the whole book and you gave, left me with just one thing, the only thing I could read for the rest of my life, it would be 1 Timothy 1.15. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Notice the certainty of that. He came to save sinners. Did he do it? He absolutely did that means if you're one of these poor, broken-hearted, blind, bruised, he saved you. It's finished. It's over. Now let's look. Let's back up here and look at what else the Lord said. He said in verse 18, he opens this way. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. Now, every believer, every elect child of God, we have the Spirit. We have the God, the Holy Spirit. We have it in measure. It differs in influence from person to person, from time to time. But he had the Spirit without measure. Everything God had, everything God was, was given to this God-man, Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelt in a body, the body of a man, Jesus Christ. Everything God had went to Jesus Christ. All things are in his hand. And it was for this reason, because God anointed him. What does it mean to be anointed? I've always kind of weirded out by that word. What does that mean? What does it mean to be anointed? It's really simple. One who is anointed, all those three offices I talked about before, all had to be anointed. It means you're chosen by God. You're chosen unto a particular task, being sent to accomplish a particular task. That means he gives you all power and all armament to complete the task, so much so that you cannot fail. He was anointed by God for this purpose. The Father said, go and save my people. These chose, chosen ones, these ones I loved in you, these ones I have purposed to show mercy to, you're going to go and you're going to make it to where I can show mercy to them and will do me absolutely no damage to my perfect sense of justice. That's what you are going to do. He was anointed to that task 
And because God was with him, because he had the spirit without measure, because he was and is God himself, he could not fail. It was an impossibility. Now, let's see how he did it. Verse 18, he said, he preached the gospel to the poor. Not only did he preach the gospel to the poor, he is the gospel to the poor. And he did the gospel to the poor. But if you wanted to sum that word up, somebody ever asked you that? I remember one time, Todd, we had a conference. And he had each one of the speakers think on this question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I think that was some of the best preaching I've ever heard in my life. Everyone focused on that. What is the gospel? It means good news. What is the message of that good news? Let me give you a really simple answer. Turn over here to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and look at verse 34. Acts 10.34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. He's absolutely right. There is no wavering standard. His standard between one man and another man is the same, perfect righteousness. That's it. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching. You see that word preaching? That is the very same word used as gospel in our text. If you want to know what the gospel is, here it is in just a few short words. Preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. If you want a very simple definition for the poor, for the brokenhearted, for the blind, for the bruised, for sinners, he made your peace with God. Only one man could make peace with God. Only one man could act as that high priest and go behind the veil and actually make appeasement with God with his own blood. And this Lord Jesus Christ did just that for his people. It says in Romans 5.1, Therefore being justified by faith. By whose faith? Does my faith justify me? No. No, my faith is a symptom. No. Being justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, justified, past tense, peace, present for every poor, needy sinner. That is the case right now. I know Claire said this coming into it, peace. That was a big word he used, peace. You know why I use that word? Because that's the gospel. Peace for sinners because of what Christ has done. That wedge that was between us and the Father, his people, he bore that sin, that wedge in his body, and he removed it, putting it away. And now we are truly reconciled to God. That's today. That's the truth for every needy sinner. who well, All they have is Christ. Need him to come do something for them. That's it. We have peace with God right now. Now be ye reconciled to God. That's the message. It says this in verse 18. And he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To those that are broken, those who do not work, those who cannot meet the standard, he sent them to heal them. And here's what he said, Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are 
right now, or nothing to be added to, nothing to be supplemented. We are right now presently healed for a man who is broken, a man who cannot work, a man who cannot get the job done for a man who cannot contribute. It's over. You have been healed. It's already taken place. It says he was sent to preach deliverance to the captives and to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, there's two types of bondage men are born into. Every man born in this world is born into two types of bondage. Number one is the bondage to sin and a sinful nature to where you cannot believe, you cannot repent, you cannot come to God, and you can do nothing but sin. Something had to be done about that sin and that nature. Now, that word is captive, right? Listen to this. I've always found this scripture very interesting, but listen to this. This is Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ... Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Do you get what he's saying there? That captivity that held us, that captivity of sin, he held captivity captive. He took that which held us captive and he held it captive in his own body. He was made the sins of his people, bearing them in his body and through his death, he Put them away. He took captivity off of us, bore it in his body, and took it away, and now we are free. That's what he said to Bartimaeus. He said this. He said, Go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. You remember what Bartimaeus said? What he did? And he followed Jesus in the way. This is what happens when you're released from the captivity of sin. Folks, we will always be somebody's captive. We're always going to be somebody's prisoner. You're either a captive to sin or a captive of Christ. But a man who's captive of Christ, saved by him, here's what he wants to do. Wherever he goes, that's where I want to go. Wherever he says, that's the truth. Wherever he did, that's just perfect. That's just fine. That's exactly the way it should be. We're always going to be somebody's prisoner. It's just whose prisoner are you? And the other one is this. Well, actually, he makes this curious statement. Look back in your text and look at verse 23. I thought this was interesting. And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. Now he said, You're going to say that to me. You're going to say unto me, Physician, heal thy Self. When did that, they say that to him? Matt just said it on the cross. This is Mark 15, 31. It says, Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Now, they were a bunch of reviling God-haters, but one thing they weren't was wrong. He saved others. He saved his people through that suffering death from holding captivity captive in his body and suffering under the wrath of God. But there's one person he couldn't save, and that was himself. It was either us or him, and he chose him. Send me that they might be spared. This is love in action. Now, the other captivity we have is this, what all men are born into. Captive to a law we cannot keep. But Christ kept his custom. 
Now, we talked about that earlier. He was a man of custom. He kept God's holy law. And now for everyone that God chose, everyone the Father gave him, now this is what we have. This is how Paul refers to it. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. We have righteousness. We meet the standard of God of perfect righteousness, and we have it without the law, without us having to do anything to earn it, just being freely given, obtaining it, having it, being it, simply because of geographically, spiritually, where we're at in Christ. That's it. Now, he says also this. He says, I was sent to recover the sight of the blind. Now, this is the only good blindness, the only good one that there is. For every man who looks inside himself, and he cannot find one reason that God would be merciful to him. There is no reason in here. He recovers their sight. And he shows them how God can be merciful to them and do absolutely no damage to his perfect sense of justice. And that word blind, you know what it means? It means obscured by smoke. Turn over here to Exodus chapter 20. This will be one of the last things I'll show you. We're talking about being recovered of sight, obscured by smoke. Let's see what the children of Israel saw. This is Mount Sinai when the Lord gave the law. Let's see what they saw. Look at verse 18 of Exodus 20. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak that with us, and we will hear but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Here's what they saw. They saw the utter unapproachableness of God. They saw the thunders. They saw the lightnings. They heard the law being given out of that great mountain. They said, we know one thing. We want nothing to do with him. We cannot approach unto him. We cannot stand before his presence. That one hates sin. That one deals in perfect, holy justice. We can't come before him. We need an intercessor. He said, you speak to him, and you come back here, and you tell us what he said, and we'll do whatever you say. But we need an intercessor. We can't go there. We can't stand before him. Moses is a type of Christ here. And look what he said, verse 20. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off. And Moses drew near under the thick darkness, the smoke, where God was. Now, when he recovers your sight, this is what you see. That's an unapproachable God. I cannot stand before him. Somebody has to stand before me, and this is how God can deal with me in mercy. This is the only way Christ had to enter that darkness on my behalf. He had to step into that violence and wrath of God to stand in that thick smoke, that thick darkness, and he had to take every single bit of it, that wrath that was reserved for me, and he had to swallow up the darkness to while there is light between me and God. That's the only way. 
When you're given sight, that's what you see. Either he did it for me, and if he did, everything is fine. And if he didn't, that's the end of it. But we have this great hope. We know exactly who he did this for, sinners. And finally this. In verse 19 of your text, it says he was sent to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You don't have to turn there. This is the end of it. This is speaking of the year of Jubilee. Now, you remember every 50 years, the children of Israel were commanded to observe this law, the year of Jubilee. And here's what happened in the year of Jubilee. If you were a prisoner or a slave, you returned to your families. If you had a debt or lost anything due to poverty or debt, it was restored to you. And this is the big one. This is the one I want to focus on. For one solid year, nobody did any work. They just rested the entire time. Nobody tilled the ground. No one picked a grape. None of those things were done. Everybody just rested. Now these right here, the poor and the brokenhearted and the bruised and the blind, all these people share this in common. This is what they are commanded to do, and this is what they all do. They rest. They are completely and utterly content to be saved by Jesus Christ alone, and they trust him to do it. This is what Hebrews 4.10 says. It says, For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. My hands are off. I have nothing to bring to the table, and I'm bringing absolutely nothing to the table. I'm simply resting and trusting that what the Lord did is what he promised he would do. He saved sinners. That's it. Now, I'll remind you how these people reacted to this. They took him, they wanted to kick him off a cliff, just like that. They were going to try to murder the Son of God. And all he had done is tell them the truth. I am that Messiah. I am that Christ. I am that anointed one of God. I'm absolutely sovereign. I'm going to save whom I will, and I will pass by whom I will. Everybody's doing the will of God. But I'll tell you exactly who I'm going to show mercy to. Sinners. That's it. Oh, and by the way, I have done absolutely everything necessary. I have made their peace with God. Now just rest. Don't move a muscle. Just rest. Just trust me. That's it. And I still want to chuck them off a cliff. I deduce from that only one thing. They weren't sinners. They weren't poor. They weren't brokenhearted. They weren't blind. They weren't bruised. Because for a sinner, for one who can't come up with the goods, this is the best news you have ever heard. I'll leave you there.